welcome to Freedom Fighters Code Grey. This is a show where we discuss human trafficking, an issue that's taking place in our backyard. How are pornography and human trafficking interconnected? And what laws do we have in Canada regarding online exploitation and pornography and human trafficking? Well, in this episode, we are going to be addressing these questions in part again. We had another episode where we dove into these questions, but we realized they're just wasn't enough time to cover this topic in, in conversation. So I'm really pleased to welcome back our very special guest who is a researcher, advocate, and freedom fighter, Kevin Wilcox. Welcome back, Kevin. So good to be back. Thank you for having me. So Kevin, just really briefly for folks who are tuning in and maybe didn't catch the last episode, could you give kind of a brief overview of how the issues of human trafficking and pornography are interconnected? Yeah, absolutely. I think a good way of, of thinking about this is to actually think about um, think about labor generally. When you think of labor, labor kind of provides one of two things. It's going to either provide a labor or a service, sorry, um, a product or a service, excuse me. And, um, and so when you apply that to something like sex work, um, we typically think of sex work as somebody providing sexual services to somebody. And, and we typically call that prostitution. Um, and there, there are a number of other ways this gets referred to, but I think a lot of people have a, a fairly good understanding of what we're talking about when we talk about um, the sexual services of a sex worker or, or somebody who might call themselves a prostitute. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a service. But when we, when we think about pornography, it's not really a service so much as it is a product, right? People are, are engaging in sex work for the purposes of uh, producing a product, that product being pornography, it's media, right? In, in a similar way to how a movie or a TV show might be, might be considered a product, a, a, a form of media. And so when we think about sex work that way as a form of labor, it can be exploited in a lot of the ways that sex work generally is exploited. And like, it can be exploited in some of the way in both contexts, right? Where if somebody is going to be trafficked for the purposes of providing sex work services, somebody can also be trafficked for the purposes of providing sex work products like pornography. And so we see examples of people being exploited in the context of being trafficked and then uh, like being forced or asked to provide um, sexual services and somebody can also be trafficked um, for the purposes of, of shooting pornography and that sex work then being published in the form of media. So that's, that's kind of how those things are connected conceptually and we do see examples of both. That's a really helpful overview, Kevin. And it actually just made me think of a stat that I read in one research report that was highlighting individuals who have been exploited, individuals who have been trafficked, and 50% of people in that study had been trafficked through pornography. Mm -hmm. So they're trafficked in other ways, but pornography was a part of that as well. Yeah. So do you have any stories that you could share from the research that you've done, from reports that you've read about how human trafficking has happened in the porn industry? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, I shared a story last time that I think really, really captures, um, really captures what it is that I'm talking about. And so just to remind viewers of that, um, in, in early 2020, um, a, a judge out of a court in California um, found in favor of 22 women who had, who had sued a, um, who had sued a pornography enterprise, a very high profile mainstream pornography enterprise. I, again, I'm not going to give the name of it because I don't want people to go look for it. Um, there are 22 women who um, who sued this pornography enterprise because what had happened is they they responded to kind of a Craigslist ad for a, for a modeling job to make some extra money, and um, when they showed up for the modeling job, they were they were um, 
they were presented with kind of the real facts of the situation. They were going to be asked to shoot um, a, an, an explicit pornographic video. They were told that it would only be, um, it would be a limited distribution, sometimes in the case of just one person, um, not shown a contract right away until they were inebriated with alcohol. And then they shoot the video and they go home and they find out later that this pornography enterprise is distributing the, the material widely. And um, and including contacting people in their personal circles to try to get folks to watch the video and, and drive business to or drive drive traffic to the business. Um, very, very pernicious, very, very exploitative. Um, the people who ran that particular business are now um, are now uh, are now fugitives, like some of them have fled the country, fled the United States because the Department of Justice has issued warrants for their arrest under uh, sex trafficking charges, including one sex trafficking of a minor charge in the United States. And so that's that's kind of one example of, of this happening in the pornography industry. Another example would be um, I referenced an article by Nicholas Kristof last uh, last time I was on called The Children of Pornhub. You can find it on the New York Times. It's an excellent article and I encourage you to read it. Um, and the, the main thrust of that story is um, there was a 15 year old who went missing in Florida and the FBI were able to find her because videos of her being um, sexually assaulted were appearing on Pornhub, which is a Canadian pornography business uh, situated in Montreal. And so they, they were able to they were, they were able to find her because they saw um, visuals of her trafficker in the pornography videos on websites sexually assaulting her. They, they were able to take those videos of, of the man that was trafficking her and, and connect it to some surveillance footage at a 7-Eleven in the United States where they were able to find the man. And they, they pulled him over on the side of the highway when they found him. And there she was in the car. Um, that, was, that was a year or two of her having gone missing and they were only able to find because she was being trafficked through the um, through trafficked for the purposes of pornography uh, production, and so and so this is kind of an example of this happening, right? Where she's not seeing clients the way that a sex worker would normally, but the trafficker has abducted this individual, um, is forcing them to perform explicit sexual activity um, for the purposes of producing pornography that then gets distributed on mainstream pornography distribution websites like Pornhub, um, and makes the traffickers money. And that's that's ultimately what this is about. It's about making people money such tragic and heartbreaking stories, Kevin. And I'm really glad that you're helping to shed light on the realities of what's happening in these spaces because there is a loud voice in our society and culture that says, if you want to watch pornography, it's fine. It doesn't hurt anyone. Um, when the reality is that there is a lot of exploitation happening and a lot of people being used and abused in this space. Um, I just tuned in um, to uh, an individual's testimony, a young girl here in Canada mm -hmm. who had sexually explicit video of her posted online to Pornhub multiple times mm -hmm. and fought for years to get it down and then it kept being uploaded and it's still something that um, she fights <laughs> against um, so that she can be freed from that continual perpetual exploitation. Yes. It's, it's really, really horrific. Mm -hmm. So Kevin, I know that you're doing research on this topic and I'm really glad that you are because a lot of folks aren't talking about it or aren't addressing it and definitely not looking at it from an academic lens. So mm -hmm. what is your research specifically on? Like what's your topic mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. what are some of your findings so far? I know that it's still kind of in the process, yep. but what are some things that you're learning and uncovering that would be helpful for our viewers to know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really great question. So I think the main message that I want to send through the research that I'm doing um, is kind of twofold. Um, 
one, that there's hope, um, and two, that there's an opportunity here to, um, to address this issue properly, but it's, it's gonna be kind of a collective effort. And so, so the topic of my research is something that I, I typically boil it down to the, the connection between human trafficking and pornography, which is what we're talking about today. But in terms of the nuts and bolts of it, I'm, I'm a, my, my background is in law. And so I'm, I'm doing my master's degree with the faculty of law at the University of Ottawa. And, and my research is looking, is surveying the different um, categories of law that we have in Canada and looking for vacancies. You know, what we talked last time about the different kinds of laws that we have here and, and some of the things that are working and some of the things that aren't. Um, and, and kind of asking the question, you know, how is it that sexual exploitation and, and human trafficking can still happen in, in a country like Canada where um, where we already have some existing legal frameworks that might address this problem, and is there is there justification for for a new development that would expand our legislation further? Um, and so, and so, what I'm finding, um, and this is kind of the hopeful component of it, is that Canada is kind of increasingly aware of the dangers of sexual exploitation and the uh, particularly um, uh, and we're particularly concerned about the. The impact of sexual exploitation on children, but I think that we're kind of alive to this question that, um, or we're alive to this reality that um, that sexual exploitation and and human trafficking you know cuts to um, the very heart of human dignity in a in a unique way, and our laws definitely reflect that, um, at least in theory. And so and so that's that's a. a that's that's something that's really hopeful, and and the the opportunity that I think I'm seeing in my legislation is that. Um, or, or in my research rather, is that um, I think we're, we're coming to a place in Canadian society where we're willing to say, um, we're willing to make collective efforts to prevent these kinds of things from happening. And so I say, um, let's look at the overlap between human trafficking and pornography. What we find are testimonials um, of people who have been trafficked for the purposes of pornography production. And I've shared a couple examples of that already. Um, we I just found this study recently where uh, that, that showed that one in eight pornographic videos that are readily available on public websites um, contain some form of sexual crime in its wow. production. And, and that's, that's a huge, huge number. You think one in eight, you know, how, how substantial is that? Well, I checked, I checked recently, Pornhub has, has um, just over 3 million videos on that website. And so one in eight of those videos we can, we can assume contain some form of sexual crime or sexual violence. Um, and X videos who uh, for the longest time was the next biggest competitor to Pornhub um, has almost three times that number of videos or more than three times that number of videos. It's almost 10 million videos now. Um, and, uh, and again, we can, we can make the same assumption about that. So that's a lot of sex crimes happening in, in, um, in one of the one of the biggest one of the biggest industries alive today, and so, um, and so what's so what's the solution to that? And I'm finding that a solution for that is going to put some responsibility on the viewer, right? And so my research is looking at this question of if it's if it's a crime to produce and a crime to distribute, is it reasonable to make it a crime to consume? And we do this with child pornography already, and we talked a little bit about that last time, where where it's a crime to make, distribute, sell, or access. Uh, something that meets the definition of child pornography. And I don't think anybody disagrees that that's, a, um, that that's a good thing. I think that everybody agrees, you know, people should not be possessing this stuff. People should not be accessing this stuff. This stuff represents severe harm to children and risk of further harm to children. And it creates pedophilic, or it, it allegedly creates pedophilic kind of inclinations in people. We need, to, we need to protect our children by making sure that this stuff can't be accessed. Can we ask a similar question about pornography that just exploits people generally, whether or not they're children? Um, 
And, uh, and so that's ultimately what my research is looking at. And I think that as our society becomes more and more aware of the affront to human dignity that sexual violence against women or LGBTQ folks or children um, uh, represents, um, I think that you know, we're, we're becoming increasingly willing to consider something like legislation, which puts the onus on the viewer to avoid it at whatever cost um, when there is violence involved. And so that's, that's kind of what my research is looking at. That is fascinating, Kevin. Really briefly, could you just help explain what would putting the onus on a viewer actually look like practically? Yeah, yeah. So this is this is the really hard question, right? Because um, as somebody who's as somebody who's had a personal run-in with pornography myself in my day, um, and I'm very thankful that that's no longer my reality. Um, I recognize that that for a lot of people, um, watching pornography and and even feeling habituated to pornography or, or addicted to pornography is something that, um, that there's not intentional malice behind for, for so many people who, who wrestle with this question. Um, and so it's very hard for me to come out and say, I think that it should be a crime to access um, sexually exploitative um, media like this. Um, on the flip side of that, I think that, um, I think that there's a good conversation to be had about whether that's reasonable knowing what we now know about how the pornography industry functions. And so the research that I'm looking at is actually looking at creating a, the research that I'm doing is actually looking at creating a criminal law offense, which makes it a crime to, again, make, distribute, produce, uh, sorry, produce, distribute, possess, or access, similar to the child pornography provisions, um, any pornography where the participants in that media haven't consented to both the sexual act in question and to its distribution. And so you might ask, well, how would a viewer know? Um, and just like in the child pornography provisions, um, which, and this does exist over there, um, I'm recommending that there be kind of a reasonable steps defense here, where if you can show that you took reasonable steps to ascertain that, yes, this, this, this video was produced consensually and there's not sexual exploitation involved, then even if you're wrong in your conclusion, um, you, you, can still, you can still raise that a defense and to say, I didn't mean to, I took steps to ascertain that this wasn't a problematic piece of material. Um, and, and if you can show that you took those steps, then, then the offense wouldn't apply to you. But yeah, I am looking at what, what it would mean for a criminal offense to fall on somebody who, who consumes and possesses this stuff. Welcome back to Freedom Fighters Code Gray. In this episode, Kevin Wilcox is joining me again to address the complexities of how pornography and human trafficking are interlinked and how our current legal frameworks address and tackle this problem, but also where the gaps exist. So Kevin was just sharing a bit about his research and some of the work that he's undertaking to identify how we could potentially strengthen laws here in Canada. But Kevin, I just actually have a question about terminology and definitions as it relates to this topic. I know that there is advocacy groups and robust language around online exploitation, yeah. um, like cybertip.ca, for example, mm -hmm. talks about child online exploitation and has vast reporting mechanisms. And as you mentioned, child pornography is tackled seriously in Canada. But then on the other hand, we have legislation and advocacy groups talking about human trafficking. Yeah. And often there's a disconnect between the realities of how trafficking is increasingly taking place through technology. Yeah. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about do you think the definitions regarding this matter um does there need to be more synergies between these groups and collaborative efforts so that our laws reflect the complexities what are just some of your thoughts regarding that yeah absolutely um so 
So I'll start with, with the child pornography provisions. If anybody's interested, um, it's very easy to find um, laws actually in Canada. And so if you're a legislation at least, you know, case law is its own thing and, and definitely pay a lawyer for that research because it's hard to do. Um, but uh, but when it comes to uh, when it comes to legislation, if you're interested in the definition of child pornography, for example, you can go to um, you can just Google Criminal Code of Canada Section One Six Three Point One. That's where that's where that definition is. It'll come up as your first as your first response. You can click on it and you can read it. And if you read that definition, you'll see that it talks about pornography as if it or it talks about child pornography. Excuse me, as any form of media produced by electronic means or otherwise. Um, and so it's very modern. Um, and, and that's a really, I think, helpful thing for the modern day. And I think that's part of the reason why this, this legislation is so effective. And so whether or not the child has been trafficked, which is a different section of the criminal code, that's 179.01, sorry, 279.01, excuse me. Um, that's, that's a different offense. And, and so we can kind of get into kind of a delineation of these different of these different terminology, just because somebody is has been involved in pornography or sex work or even child pornography does not necessarily mean they're going to meet the definition of trafficking, but like these things are definitely overlap. Um, and so this question of like how we how we take these concepts and and apply them to the modern day where where so much of our lives are are online, I think it really is going to depend on on the issue. Um, Michaela and I, you were talking just before we started shooting about how. Um, there's kind of this difference in understanding of, you know, child sexual exploitation or online sexual exploitation of children um, and, and, uh, and the sexual exploitation of, of adults, whether it's women or LGBTQ folks um, in the context of pornography. I, I think that um, the legislation that we have around child pornography is, is really good at addressing sexual exploitation of children, um, at least in concept and, and enforcement is a different question. I think online crimes are always hard to, hard to um, investigate and prosecute and so forth, but, but they are effective and it does happen. Um, it happens less frequently with adults. And I think that's because the legislation that we have to address, um, to address uh, the sexual exploitation of adults in the context of pornography, for example, is much older and, and is less, is not as well adapted to the modern online digital world as the child pornography offenses are. And so we talked last time about obscenity, which is a, which is an offense in Canada. Um, it's also in the criminal code. And, um, and, and, and while those, while that offense and while that, that kind of legislative structure can in theory and, and in my mind does address so much of the exploitation, exploitation we see online um, today of, of adult, of adults who are in vulnerable positions, um, because it hasn't, because it wasn't framed in such a way as to um, address kind of the modern digital forms of obscenity and exploitation, I think that it's it's not enforced quite as well on that basis. And so there is kind of a disconnect there between um, there is a disconnect there between you know how those earlier offenses were conceptualized and the modern problems that I think needs to be addressed today. So with this particular law that you've referenced, the mm -hmm. obscenity law, yeah, what do you think could be done? for it to be strengthened, or even maybe not this law in particular, because I know that you said that there's five laws in Canada regarding mm -hmm. um, combating pornography issues and exploitive crimes. And so I'm just wondering for that group that you think is kind of, there's a gap in terms of how our legislation better protects and supports adults, um, mm -hmm. women, um, or folks who identify in the LGBTQ community of mm -hmm. how they may be exploited in the pornography industry. 
what are your thoughts about how we can strengthen our laws to better yeah. protect and prevent that group of individuals? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So my, my answer is going to sound political, but it, it really isn't like I, I think I think in terms of law and and I, and I think like a jurist, like I, I'm not a particularly political individual. And, and that's that's just kind of my temperament. I try to be fair minded and balanced. Um, but but this is this is kind of my response to that. The old obscenity provisions um, have their roots in very very old English common law doctrines that are premised on public morality, right? Trying to preserve the morals of, a, of any given society. And you you talk to any kind of politically oriented individual today, or somebody that that you know has a stake in the pornography question, you know, in in politics, and you start talking about you know preserving public morals with them, and and they're going to get their back up very quickly. Um, because the question always arises, whose morals are we talking about here? If we're talking from a, a Judeo-Christian perspective, for example, well, those are those are old values of old politics that we're that we're trying to move past now in our modern day. And we can discuss whether or not that's reasonable, but I think there's a better question. I think there's a better discussion to be had than trying to defend old morals in, in new politics. The, the better discussion that I think needs to be had is um, can we formulate laws that are premised strictly on on the modern sensibilities of preventing harm and preserving uh, the dignity of the individual. Um, and the answer to that question is absolutely we can. Um, we can borrow a lot of concepts from these old obscenity laws and, and build into something new, like what we have with the child pornography provisions, which again, everybody agrees um, is something that we need to have. And so when we, when we formulate new laws that are not premised on the preservation of public morality, which is not a concept that's particularly helpful to people right now, but are instead premised on uh, preventing harm to women, children, and and vulnerable folks, um, we I think we can have better. I think that we have a better shot at passing laws that do those things that are that are separated from kind of the old concepts of of public morality that people aren't really comfortable with anymore. I think that's a really helpful dis distinguishing definitions that you're using in terms of public morality. And then looking at the issue from preventing harm and defending dignity, mm -hmm. because even in different debates that are happening in Canada right now regarding legislation and laws, there can be a tendency to focus it around morality. Mm -hmm. And folks, as you mentioned, aren't interested in the political sphere of addressing it from that lens any longer, mm -hmm. but looking at preventing harm and defending dignity of those who may be vulnerable to exploitation. So right. what does preventing harm, in your opinion, and defending dignity look like mm -hmm. in our laws and legislation? Yeah. What can be strengthened? What can be improved to do that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so this is going to I'm going to out myself a little bit here. So I, I had the incredible privilege of spending some time with an organization called International Justice Mission in South Asia. They're the largest anti-slavery organization in the world. And I had the absolutely just mind-blowing privilege of getting to serve with them um, in working on, on bonded labor slavery cases in one of their offices in South Asia. And I, I believe in this organization. I love what they call their theory of change, which is the, the, the theoretical formula that they believe will 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 end slavery. And they believe that slavery can be ended in our lifetime. And, and, and for them, they kind of, um, they kind of bring kind of human trafficking and, and slavery together in kind of the same terminology. That's a, that's a disputed um, thing to do. And I, and I don't wanna comment on that so much as I wanna address their theory of change, which is that the end of poverty or the end, the end of, um, we'll call it vulnerability and exploitation begins with the end of violence, right? And, and violence, um, violence is prevented by effective and ethical law enforcement. Um, and, and you need both of those things. You need it to be effective, but you also need it to be ethical. There's a lot of, there's a lot of discussions right now around, um, 
that I think need to be had about um, police brutality and injustice uh, per, uh, perpetuated against vulnerable folks at the hands of police. I think that's an important discussion to have, but the, the solution to that cannot be the abolition of law enforcement. It needs to be the strengthening of it in an ethical way. And so when it comes to, um, when it comes to solutions for, for addressing these kinds of things now, I think that we do need to be looking at law enforcement solutions because it is, it's ultimately um, not, that, not that the police or the state are the first line of defense against exploitation. I actually think they're the last. You need community, you need, um, you need family, like you need, you need personal support systems around you um, that when those things fail, the state is there to intervene um, against your exploitation or intervene in your exploitation and, and, and protect you from that. But, but without effective laws, without effective law enforcement, I don't think that, that exploitation is ever really going to go away. And so, and so it is my position that it is my position that we need to be looking at criminal law solutions and um, and resources that we can provide to our law enforcement agencies, um, investigative enforcement, et cetera, even judicial, um, to help us understand and address these forms of exploitation better in the modern day, particularly in the digital world. I feel like we could have a whole other conversation on the enforcement of laws. It's yeah. one thing to have great legislation and laws mm -hmm. to protect those in our community, but how are they being enforced? How are yeah. they being educated about why they should be enforced and what that looks like? But maybe another time. Maybe another Kevin, time. Yeah, maybe another time. Kevin, I'm just wondering, there are folks who may be tuning in today who are struggling with pornography. Mm -hmm. or maybe a loved one of theirs is struggling, yeah. or maybe they have a child who's been exposed to yeah. sexual media content. Mm -hmm. And they're just wondering, where can I go for help? Where can I go for resources and support? Mm -hmm. What are just some suggestions that you have regarding that front? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I, I, I have a few answers to that question. My first one will be, if you personally are struggling with pornography, tell somebody that you trust enough to call you out on it on a regular basis. Like your, your first resource always is going to be the people around you. You don't have to pay for, you don't have to pay for anything to, to find yourself. Um, to, to, you don't have to pay for anything to, to have a, like a, a useful support system that, that is able to support you through, um, through uh, the difficulty of being being stuck in pornography, you know, when I when I was struggling, like that's what I did. I talked to my friends. I talked to um, my dad even at one point. Like that that was really helpful, and I think that that's what people need to start with. Um, there are also some really useful um, services out there that you can pay for, which are which are helpful in. Um, in providing kind of filters and and um, accountability in your web browsers and whatnot, you know, Fortify is a good one. They're associated with an organization called Fight the New Drug, which is which does a whole ton of research on pornography. Um, also, Covenant Eyes, Covenant Eyes is another good one. And there's actually one called Triple X Church that's a bit older. And um, if you're if you're a religious individual, you might be interested in that one. But all of these things offer various forms of filters on your websites that will be helpful in. And just blocking you when you go and you and you try to find something like that, and that's been helpful to a number of people in my life as well. In terms of being somebody who's on the outside looking in, whether you're a partner or a friend or a parent, um, I think like I I say this constantly that um, pornography for me is a sorry, the end of the end of the end of trafficking in Canada requires um, that requires the end of pornography because pornography keeps two slaves, right? There's the, there's the person in front of the camera and there's a person behind the screen. And if there's somebody in your life who's stuck in this, um, you need to lead with compassion um, and, and not with anger. You know, I don't believe in condemnation. I believe in compassion, right? I don't believe in, 
in shame. I believe in conviction. Yes, and Kevin, and I totally agree with you. And I really appreciate you sharing those helpful resources and just taking the time to share your expertise on this issue today. If you or someone you know has been impacted by trafficking um, and you're in immediate danger, please call 911. Otherwise, reach out to the Canadian Human Trafficking Hotline at 1-833-900-1010. If you are under the age of 18 or you have a child under the age of 18 who's been impacted, by online exploitation, please visit cybertip.ca for resources and information and support on how to report. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Freedom Fighters Code Grey. And viewers, we hope to catch you next time.